Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Hi, everyone, and the Spotlight on IRT Podcast. I'm Matt Lowry, and today we're going to be talking about languages. As clinical trials continue to have a truly global reach, we need to make sure sites all over the world understand what they need to do and how to do it. Recently, we were out shopping, and I saw a book about relaxation by a celebrity. Tagline read that she relaxes through cooking her pets and family. My inner grammar police came out, and I thought that, as a non-English speaker, may be downright terrifying. A few days later, I ended up fielding a query from a client at about a few translations we had done, and I had the opportunity to speak with our languages group. The client had an in-country review done of the translation and didn't quite agree with the wording. It ended up being a matter of preference, and they kept the original terminology as it was more medically accurate. It was the equivalent of the difference between saying a cut versus a laceration. This is when I realized there's a lot that goes into an IRT system regarding the translation of prompts, and we don't always think about it. We pay a lot of attention to things like drug supplies, stratifications, cohorts, and balance of randomization, but sometimes we forget that a trial is going to be run all over the world. When that happens, we have to take a language like English, which isn't always the easiest to understand, and translate it in several different ways. Because of this, I reached out to two experts. The first is Ruth Gabrick, who leads the translations group at LMAC and oversees all the implementation of different languages into the IRT system. The other is Albertina Adverick, the president and founder of Doylestown Translation Services, where they specialize in medical translations. I wanted to invite them here today to have a discussion about languages in general and any considerations you might want to take around languages when you design your next IRT system. Ladies, I've got a whole lot of questions, but first, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having us here. Hi, welcome. My pleasure. So we wanted to talk a little bit about languages on an IRT platform today. One of the things that I want to start off with is, are we seeing them actually being used more and more in IRT? Absolutely, Matt. I would say in the IRT space, right now we are seeing about 50 or 60 languages, and as clinical trials grow and we need to reach more naive populations, we're seeing an increase in more remote languages that we, we haven't seen previously. So what's the average number, would you say, on an IRT system? Averagely, we do about 10 languages per project. Sometimes there are one or two, depending on the stage of the trial, and sometimes it can go as high as 20 to 30 languages per project. Now, Albertina, are you seeing even more coming across, not just outside of IRT, but in general? We actually do. For our other clients, uh, we are using and more critical in a more remote areas. For AMAC, we work on 60 languages, and um, I would say half of them are pretty common languages. English is the native language that the IRT systems are usually programmed in and support. But English can kind of be a, a wonky language, if you will. Yes. It can be obscure, a little obscure at times. Let's eat grandma can mean a couple different things depending on where you put the emphasis. <laughs> so how do you start working through something with English where you have the different language families? Well, I would say that is the first place to start. 
English is a very wonky language, and because of that, we really have to take care in how we structure our trials and especially how we structure our prompts because, as you just mentioned, let's eat grammar can have very different meanings, and in English, we may use commas or punctuation to demarcate the meanings. Languages, depending on the language, depending on the language groupings, the subject verbs may not agree, and we have to consider what the impact would be on other languages, not just in English. So that is correct. And um, also, like, if you just forget to finish the sentence, it can be totally different meaning in different languages. It can be a verb or it can be a noun. It can be a command. Or it can basically just mean, I don't know, uh, to increase a dose or to do something. Or it's, it's just a matter if you forgot punctuation or not or put it in the wrong spot. Now, I would go even further to say in the IRT space, looking at English, it becomes even more important because we often use concatenated or fragmented prompts. And with English, we're able to say, let's eat, and then maybe put a variable in, 10, 20 apples or oranges. But in other languages, you may not be able to put a variable in the middle of that sentence. And those are the kind of considerations we have to take when we're creating prompts. That is true. Um, I think that uh, actually clients should be educated in the best possible way to know that basically just to take in consideration when they're creating their prompts in English that in other languages it might not work that way. Correct. Like the placeholder might not be able to be where they want it to be because it like let's say a verb has to be connected to a subject in some language otherwise it means absolutely nothing. Pretty hard for clients if they're not linguistically aware. Aware, yeah about English is, and the difference between English and other languages is many other languages have male, female, they have the yes. it version. You are 100% right. In Germanic languages and in Romance languages, for example, they have uh, masculine, feminine, and neutral. And on top of that, they have six cases. So in some languages, some cases are obsolete and some are not. Let's say Finnish language. That one has no prepositions, but it has 11 different cases. So, I mean, how do you compare that to English? They can say the same sentence in English in so many different ways. So, um, naturally, people do have a lot of questions because um, they care about quality. They care about being correct in their translation. And also, patients' lives can be in stake. It's, it's, it's not translating uh, romance, you know, novel. Okay, you can't really hurt anyone. Correct. And I think another consideration with the IRT space is that while we have to consider cultural meanings, in the IRT space we are a lot more specific. And that this is where collaboration with language vendors, with the clinical sites, with the clients, and with our project managers, we have to keep this open communication because when you're gathering requirements for a clinical trial, these are the considerations that you have to take into consideration. It's not only in English, but how would this translate when we're opening sites in other languages? How would these prompts translate? And this is where we have these open conversations and we talk to our language vendors and we talk to our PMs and we talk to the clients. And so it's very important when we're talking about translations that we understand that there is a room for questions, we expect questions, and we all want to work together to make this a collaborative effort. There's no other way, really. So you, you talked a little bit about romance and Germanic languages. Could you just give us a couple examples of what would be considered a, a romance language? Okay, Germanic languages are 
European languages that developed from Proto-Germanic group of languages. I, I would say German is the one that everybody knows, but let's um, English as a wonky language, as you say, that is Germanic language too. And then uh, Dutch, Afrikaans, Swedish, Norwegian, Icelandic. Romance languages are the one who developed from Latin, actually from vulgar Latin, that was the spoken language. So it's Italian, it's uh, Spanish, Portuguese, French. French. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, there's a difference between them. Obviously, we all know that Romance languages have a nicer flow, but also, in grammatical sense, they are more flexible and fluid, and while Germanic languages are not. They're very specific, and in certain ways, that's great. But when you have fragmented prompts, it's not such a great idea because they really have to have their verb or their subject, and it's not possible always. And again, speaking about English being a wonky language, it also is the universal language. And when we, as we talked earlier about how clinical trials go into more remote areas, there's some languages, for example, Tagalog or Filipino, um, that's spoken in the Philippines. And because of the cultural history of that country, there's Spanish influences, there's English influences, and for medical terminology especially, there's some words that just have to stay in English. Yes. And Albertina, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, I believe it's Finnish or it's Hungarian, actually. Some words that because you have to use the English, they actually have endings that you have to put along with the English to demarcate that there are English words in the middle of, let's say, a, a Filipino sentence or a Hungarian sentence. Well, the thing is, um, clinical trials vocabulary with words like unblind, randomize, allocate, and stuff like that was developed in English language. Sure. And in other countries, unblind means like you actually have a blind person that you have to now make see for some reason, you know. And it makes absolutely no sense to use it in, in a system. So they, a lot of languages actually adopted English words. But then they try to actually conjugate them in their own language. So they have to add a little endings so it makes any sense. Because, you know, it would be like uh, talking now about this. And all of a sudden you just drop word cat in it. And everybody will be like, what? What? Many languages adopted. Some languages do not attempt to have plural or to conjugate foreign words. They just like the word always stays the same. Like computer is always computer. There's no computers. Taxi is always taxi. Kit is always kit, but some languages they incorporated it so well that they actually follow grammatical rules of their language while with inserting English. a foreign word. Mm -hmm. So um, it makes it, it a little very interesting, complicated interesting and interesting. Thoughts. And when we are checking, as you know, we're like this word is ending on something when actually doesn't exist in other in other words, and it's making the accommodations for the English. Yes, exactly. When you have that type of English inserted in, what do you do about things where it's a non-Latin alphabet, um, the Cyrillic alphabets? How does that really affect it? <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> well, uh, Cyrillic alphabet, as we all know, is the Cyril is alphabet used in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Bulgaria, Serbia, Macedonia, part of Bosnia. Very old alphabet, and it has uh, 33 letters, which is... So than our English. Latin alphabet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to follow and it's easy to learn because there is appropriate symbol to every letter in the Latin alphabet. So you can basically uh, kind of decipher it, every word. But 
the, pr the problem comes that they actually have how many? Six letters. They are exactly same as the Latin alphabet, but they have a different meaning and they sound different. So let's say that we're going to imagine that, for example, H-O-C is some kind of abbreviation. Like an ad hoc dose. Yes. Right. There you go. And, and you know, medical terminology. So if it's written as H-O-C, you and I are going to read H-O-C or hoc, you know, no problem. But the person who reads Cyrillic, they're going to say, oh, no, that's N-O-S. This means nose, which means nose, you know, the nose on our face. That's, that's why it's important to make extremely clear expectations and clear instructions, like especially for the voiceovers. They don't necessarily have to know any medical terminology. They don't even have to know, I mean, exactly what it means, but they do have to know if they're going to read it hawk or nose mm -hmm. or how it's going to be written in sight materials. It has to be very clearly uh, defined. Right now, what we are doing is we are keeping all the abbreviations in English to make it consistent. kind of yeah mm -hmm. consistent and maybe error-proof okay. because when you start introducing now two alphabets, it, it becomes really tricky and it can lead to many errors, which we don't want to happen. And also in the IRT space, we had maybe 90% of the clinical trials were on the phone and maybe 10% on the web. Nine, ten years later, the numbers have completely reversed. And so a lot of the prompts that we're sending to our translation vendors are going to be seen on the web and not actually spoken. Now, many times we still do recordings, but this is where these distinctions really come into play. You know, are, are these prompts that are going to be seen? And do they need to be laid out a certain way? Or are they just going to be spoken? And let's say for an unblinding module, is someone actually going to pick up the phone and listen to these prompts? So when you see the prompts written out, you actually want to see the correct letters. What about languages like Arabic or Hebrew where it goes right to left instead of left to right? Does that cause any issues or is that a consideration you would need to take? Absolutely. Maybe not so much in the translation space because the translator will, will still translate into the language. But when it comes into the development and how we're actually doing our infrastructure and the architecture, that's a consideration that we have to talk with our developers about on how these prompts are going to display. because. English and not the other languages, they read from left to right. Japanese can from go from top, top to down, bottom. Yeah. yeah. But they can also and write they can also in depending a on the on the horizontal form, way. And the horizontal way. But all of these are considerations that have to be taken when you're building the system because you want to be able to go left to right as well as right to left. Well, I would say also, um, right now we are not doing any marketing materials for AMAC, but we are doing it for other clients. And when they have posters, everything changes. Everything has to be reversed. Then that's where you have to have multilingual uh, desktop publishing specialists mm -hmm. who know how to like shrink letters in the same way that they should be in English and how to reverse pictures on the other side. So uh, I would say it's more coding and development, maybe marketing issue. Mm -hmm. But for the translations, it is just written left to right or right to left. Depends whatever alphabet you I mean, Microsoft so Word does a wonderful thing. They have language proofing packs that in our languages department, we actually have to have installed in each of the keyboards because when we receive, when we're relating with the vendors, we have to be able to edit using those languages' characters. Yes. And so... In that respect, you do have to have language, what we call language proofing packs. But as far as actually building the architecture, that's, some, that's something that has to be brought up to development. 
Yeah, the Microsoft Word actually has a built-in uh, dictionary. Mm -hmm. That's how it works that way. But um, I would like to say one thing that a lot of people are making big, big mistake with. People are using Google Translate. One thing about Google Translate is you can be sure that eventually you are going to hurt someone Absolutely. if you use that translation. I mean, that is for sure. And second of all, what people don't know, anything you enter into Google Translate, it is kept there forever. Yeah. It's not story about being um, privacy. It's gone. There is no privacy. If, if you enter, let's say, on a translation into Google Translate, that's it, done. You just broke like every possible rule about privacy and it's it's theirs now but people don't know that so even our clients i mean they just enter stuff into google translate and they come back to us with like a bunch of papers and said this is what google translate said well a lot of people really like to way. use google translate for back translation which is a discussion yes. yeah let's let's talk about back translations for a minute you know is there value in doing those? Is there value in going from English to, let's say, Finnish, and then coming from Finnish back into English to make sure it went well? Or do you lose something because of the way it has to be conjugated or the way the sentence structure is? Is it is it a one-for-one? One? Not always. I'd actually say probably not ever. I think back translation is useful for a check. The problem is it depends because of language is such a, an art as well as not a specific science things can be translated many different ways. And yes. so for back translation, I think it's valuable to be sure that the meaning is there, but in the IRT space, we're much more precise. And therefore, I would suggest using tools like a certificate of a translation. That way you do have your a guarantee that these translations have been done by a certified translator and proofreader. Yes. And you don't get into the back and forth that you do when you go into back translations. So there is some value there, but overall, when you're looking at the life of a trial, I think you, you probably get more value from getting a certificate of translation. You, you lose some of the nuances of the, the translation when you go to back translation. Is that what I'm I'm hearing? No, you not, are. Not necessarily, no. You are not going to get exactly the, the text that you've given out. Yes. Okay. So, for example, you give me the, the English. Meaning, but not the right. exact. And uh, we are going to translate it into, I don't know, whatever, Italian, let's say, as a simple language, right? Mm -hmm. Sorry, Italian people, it's not that simple, but I'm just using it as an example. Now you're going to give me Italian to translate back into English without me seeing the original English right. at all. So they are going to translate, but they're going to try to follow the flow of their language and the spirit of their language, and therefore it's not going to be exactly, exactly the, the same, same as your uh, original English. So some people are going to be okay with that, depending on what is material, and some people are going to be totally ticked off and yes. say, this is, not, this is not good, this is not right, this is not correct. Although it is correct. You can say, I don't know, word enrollment. Okay, we have so many word for, words for enrolling, entering, registering, so, and we can define them as like all different things and different, you know, uh, words in different languages and in English. But when you go into back translation, you can actually use any anyways. one of them. They're all okay. You know, they're not wrong. But like if somebody in clinical trial sees, and, sees it and say, they would say, what do you mean? They used word enrolled. It's not enrolled. It's they enter the trial. Enrolled is something different. But especially so it's meaning. It, it's meaning with back translation. And in the IRT space, we try and keep away from meaning for exactly that reason. And to allude to something that you said earlier, but you apologize to the Italians because language is so tied to culture as well 
that people's emotions get involved with it too. And so when you go to back translation, depending on who is back translating it, they're going to stick to the guns and say, well, I'm Italian and this is the way it should go. And which in many cases is correct, but in clinical spaces, we want to be very precise and get the medical terminology. So it's not so much of a cultural nuance as in this is a protocol that we're trying to get across. And so that's where back translation kind of loses its allure, I'll say, in the IRT space. Yeah, I agree. I, I wanted to switch back to, you had mentioned um, Japanese when we were talking about the Hebrew and the Arabic going from right to left. For those alphabets, the Japanese, the Korean, the Mandarin alphabets, what type of considerations do you really have to take into account there? Are there any nuances there, anything that really pops into your head that you could share? <laughs> there is a lot of considerations <laughs> there. Okay, Korean is totally separate from Japanese. Japanese is totally separate from Chinese. Chinese has a lot, a lot of, of things. things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Japanese has three alphabets, kanji, hiragana, Hira. and katakana, right? And kanji is based on uh, the Chinese. Chinese symbols. Like, it's the pretty one that people tattoo on themselves. But hiragana and katakana, they're more uh, modern Japanese. They used for foreign words, for emphases, for uh, grammatical like elements, mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. in the professional space. Right. But really, what we get at the end, it's a mix of all three. And um, for us, people who don't speak <laughs> Japanese looks pretty, but <laughs> we don't really know how it's supposed to go. Uh, that's why we use a certified medical translators right. who do know. <laughs> and uh, also, they have no way of describing like acronyms in um, in Japanese language with their symbols. So they use a Latin alphabet. I don't know, abbreviations that we're using, like IXRS. They're gonna just leave it as IXRS because there's no way to describe it unless you actually spell out the whole thing. You can do that. And those are the kind of considerations we take when we're gathering requirements. You know, we ask up front, would you like all acronyms, well, in in this space, in the IRT space, all drug names are always going to be in English. Acronyms, what they are in English, those symbols may mean something completely different in French or another language. And so we always have to have the client actually spell out what the acronym is. And so like Albertina exactly. is saying, the cultural or the translator, the proofreader can decide what makes more sense in their space. Would it make more sense to use an acronym using that target language's sentence structure? Or would it make more sense to just spell out what the acronym means. For Chinese, it seems that um, a lot of people are really confused with Chinese language. Yes. Chinese language actually has two alphabets, simplified and traditional. And that seems to be clear. But what is not clear is people connect and say, okay, Mandarin Chinese uses simplified. simplified. And let's say traditional alphabet is used in Cantonese. Cantonese. But then what now you have Taiwanese, Taiwanese, you know, and um, to make it simple and recorded on your podcast so everybody knows it forever. Basically, if you live in China, you use simplified alphabet and you speak Mandarin. If you live in Hong Kong or Macau, you use traditional alphabet and you speak Cantonese. Uh, also, like some people in Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, Singapore use it too. If you're in Taiwan, you use language that we call Taiwanese, but Chinese people call it Mandarin, written in traditional characters. 
And then what because else we Taiwanese have? Taiwanese is actually not a written language. It's more of a spoken. Yes. So uh, we have Singapore that's simplified and they're speaking Mandarin. And Malaysia writes traditional but also speaks Mandarin. So I know that's like super confusing. <laughs> but um, And then in Hong Kong. Yeah, Hong Kong has a traditional language. I mean, their official language is Cantonese. And Cantonese uses, um, traditional, uses characters. traditional characters. Yes. The thing is that um, we all assume, I mean, if somebody's Chinese, they can speak Cantonese and Mandarin and every language, but they can't. Because the Cantonese, they, they're similar to Mandarin, but they made their new language and they actually came up with the new symbols that did not exist in traditional Chinese alphabet. Mm -hmm. So Mandarin speakers, they, they cannot read it at all. And then they speak in a dialect when they read it. So it's absolutely two different languages. So Korean. Well, the Korean alphabet, um, it's known as Hangul, and it was created in the 15th century. It has other names too, but it's the official writing system of North Korea and South Korea. Now this alphabet, it, it has 14 consonants and 10 vowels, and the groups are, the letters are grouped in syllabic blocks, vertically <coughs> and horizontally. Now, some linguists consider it the most logical writing system in the world, partly because the shapes of its consonants mimic the shapes of the speaker's mouth exactly. when pronouncing each consonant. Really? Yeah, that is so, so interesting. Yes. That's really neat. Clinical trials, they want to get into some of these more naive populations. Yes. It's part of expanding the reach of the trial, making sure that you get the best possible care for the subjects involved. If you go into a remote area, thinking about some of those places um, that are incredibly remote, whether it's in Africa or, or in the Aboriginal tribes in Australia. Right. Or when you have a language, something that may not be even written down or spoken only, how do you go about, if you, how do you manage that from a linguistic standpoint? I was just going to say, then you're talking about you're moving away from translations to now linguistics. Yes. Because the, you have to get teams of people to actually go and live with these people. Um, and I know this from personal family history and they spend years in these cultures really learning the language. Now, what they're learning is just a spoken language. Now, you'll know um, in Africa, there's a story of the griots, you know, how they pass the culture down, and that was just spoken storytelling. And so what the, ling what the linguists do is they go out, they stay with the people, and just as we're talking about Korean, they actually develop the written language based on what they're hearing. Right. And so, and, and that's how the language is become written because we were talking about languages that have never had a written form at all and um, the clinical trials I don't believe have reached that far because most of the clinical trials that we're doing already have some kind of written languages yes. but there are languages like we we're just talking about Korean that are based on how they're spoken because there has never been a written form right well in clinical trials I would say that our um, at least the one that we are doing for AMAC I would say COXA is the most interesting one Absolutely. because it has clicks yeah. and um, when you listen to it I mean I cannot say word any word in Coxa because there's you just speak speak and the person who's listening can say what is this you know why they're doing this mm -hmm. but that is part of the language of, yeah. actually and they also have I think in Africa I don't know exactly what language but it's a whistling language mm. and it's so cool <laughs> or like not using it a Swedish to, um, they have a they and yeah. sometimes it seems like you need a glass of water when you're recording, and it's, that's just part of their flow of their language. That's oh, <laughs> for example, what Japanese. 
you know, we want speakers to say some words in English. They do not even have, have a R. sound L. Does yeah. not exist at all. So they're trying so hard to say it, and it comes out something in between L, R, D, something like that. And they're trying, but and so are we unrealistic? Or when we talk about medical names or drug names, we always want to keep that in English. And I find that's a very hard thing, for, especially for our Asian speakers, to pronounce some of these names. And so there we give a little bit of license and cultural flow because what are you going to do? This is how they pronounce yeah. it in their sure. culture and in their language. But yeah, you know what? It makes sense because the people who are going to listen to it mm -hmm. are going to pronounce it in exactly the same way. Yes. You know, if, if somebody pronounces like in a super American way, uh, speaker or listener in, in Japan or in China, they're going to be like, what? You know, it doesn't right, sound right. <laughs> and that's where in-country reviewers actually do have some significance as well because it's one thing for us to say yes you know we're just going to translate it word for word and make sure it makes sense but sometimes it does help to have in-country language reviewers too to kind of make it flow according to the language and it's a fine line it's a balance between having a natural flow that culturally fits and sticking to the protocols as because we're a heavily regulated industry and we yeah. have to stick to the protocols as well so, so personal preference can't come into it so no personal preference. So who do you choose then for an in-country reviewer? Is it another translator? Is it someone at a medical site? Is it really up to? It's generally up to the sites, and that kind of leads back to our discussion about back translations because we never know who is actually going to review the translations. Is it going to be someone that is certified, or is it going to be a doctor at the office? And that's where the open lines of communication need to come into play. And we are, the RIT space, we do rely heavily on our translation vendors because we know that any translation coming from our translation vendors are going to be professional, they're going to, they're certified. And so when clients come back after reviewing their translations and they have changes, many times we try to educate the client and saying, hey, you know, you want to make a change here, but we're not sure, is this a cultural change? Is this a personal preference? And we have guidelines. Many times clients want things the way they want them, and then we'll take it back to the translation vendor and we'll say, hey, is this an actual change or just a personal preference? Now, we're in the business of pleasing our clients, and so when it comes back to a push and shove and they want a translation a certain way, we can accommodate that. But what we do, at Almac at least, is we will always keep our certified translation in the repository. That's what we're going to use. But, and this is where we're kind of going to coding, we will make accommodations for the client preferences. So we'll have specific client custom prompts. And for their systems, we'll use their translations if that makes more sense for them. That, that is uh, true. It's, it's really a gray area because we, as uh, people who work with languages, mm -hmm. we would absolutely prefer if people who are reviewing it are Our linguists right. or at least just always the same person have um, for pharmaceutical company always same person reviewing same language so there is some kind of consistency the problem is that those people who are reviewing it they have no translation memories they have no glossaries so they're just going based on their own opinion mm -hmm. how they like things to be said mm -hmm. and yes Sure, we are going to accommodate what Almax says, what Almax client says.
because it is their system and they have to get what they want. The consistency should and it would be great if we can obtain it every single time. But um, And part of the tools that we use for consistency is translation memory tools. Yes. And and why we have good partnerships with specific vendors is because they build up preferred glossaries or preferred terms that are used for Almac and not only for Almac but for our clients as well. And so when you have sites or clients that have many different in-country reviewers and we see that they're varying off of what our standard terminology is, that's when we can raise the flag and say, hey, we've done many trials for you. We use, let's say in French, we always use this term for enrollment or for screening right. or for rescreening. And in this particular project, you're saying you want to use another word. And that's where, and we lose time a lot of time because we've got deadlines as well. And so it, it is, as Albertina is saying, it's a very fine line between being culturally sensitive and sticking to the protocols and keeping in mind deadlines as well. Because when, especially because it's a global thing, when you're going back and forth with a site in Korea and right. you know you have a client in the UK and we're here in the US and we're trying to coordinate all of these pieces each day that we have to send a question back and forth is another day off of our deadlines. And here's where we would again say our certificate of translation makes more sense. So you'd recommend then having, to our listeners, having a glossary of preferred, preferred terms. terms. And there's there's a lot of value and there's a lot of efficiency that can be gained there. And, Absolutely. and I think I'm hearing the same thing from you, Tina, that Absolutely. having that really sets up for success and cuts down on those timelines and cuts down on that turnaround time. Absolutely. It does. It's a very hard thing to do for the client because some of our clients and your clients are huge pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. that have multiple sites business, yeah. and they are really on a global scale. So our translations and your systems are not going to end up always in the same spot and not always the same personnel is going to work on it, listen to it, use it, and, and therefore review it. It's, it's a tricky, tricky thing, but as long as you have a um, good vendor, good PM, good language people in-house and clients that are open for communication and they actually do want to have the best possible system, it, it's going to work out. And again, this is another plug of saying why Google Translate is not the end all and be all because of all these nuances that we have to take into consideration. Exactly. The translators have really a key role then when you're looking at an IRT system and, and making sure it's, it's done correctly. Exactly. They do. How do you go about selecting them? What's the ba is there any basic criteria? Is there any way to really make sure you're getting the, the best that's out there? Well, we start, first of all, we send out our questionnaire to all of our potential vendors, and that's one of the key questions that we ask because on AMAC we would like all of the translators to at least be native speakers. We ask um, our vendors what certifications or accreditations the translators have, if they have to be members of the ATA or other translation associations, and I'll hand over to Tina um, because obviously we use them because they have, they have vetted their translators very well. We do. We, have, we are specialized in medical translations. I know that 99% of translation companies translate everything, legal, medical, everything. We translate only medical. So we focus only on medical translators as well, certified medical translators. So when you're looking for new translators, first you would look if they're specialized in, uh, if they have specialization in, I don't know, biotechnology, pharmaceutical, medical, general medical. Then you would look, what is their education? 
and a lot of people actually have really high degrees, PhDs, doctorates, and in medical profession. And then you would see if they're certified in that. You would also look if they have experience and how much experience they have and who they work for. Then you are going to ask for references from their peers and from their clients. Then you're going to go to directories and see the feedback that they got from others as well. And, um, and then, of course, you have to go down to the, you know, what is their rate? What is their turnaround time? Because some of these people are so highly, highly uh, educated and specialized mm -hmm. that they're busy. I mean, you can't, like, if you are trying to select a doctor, you can find some doctor. Mm -hmm. But if you want some specialist, you might have to sort of wait for months to get to it. We have uh, basically one pool of translators that we are working with for a whole decade. And they are all doing only medical translations. They do not do legal. They do not do general. They do not do anything but medical. And we do only medical as well. It is basically their specialization, experience, education, degree, certification, and their peer and client review as well. Now, when you go to do the translations, are they actually translating the prompts, or is it going through a machine and then being? That is a new that is a new trend in an industry. I know that agency, in order to save money, they translate. Now there's many very smart translation tools like neural translation tools, and many people do go that way. They translated it that way, and then. They just send it for the proofreading and editing by other linguist or translator. We kind of started in an old-fashioned way where actually a person looks at the sentence and translates it on the other side of the column. And we stuck with it. We are sticking with it because we think that no machine can ever replace human. Yeah. I know that that is more like a business decision and it's more like saving money decision we decided to rather stick with quality than quantity. And I'm sure, Ruth, from your aspect, you're wanting to see more of that quality built in. Absolutely. You absolutely can't. Absolutely, especially in the IRT space, because what we translate affects human lives. You know, this is not, exactly. we're not just translating labels for clothing or perfume. This affects human lives. And so when we pick our translation vendors, we take them through an extensive Betting. Um, now there's three levels. There's a translator, <laughs> there's a proofreader, and then there's a <laughs> and there's a native speaker. You know, for the native speaker, if they're just recording the prompts, we're not as strict. But for a translator and a proofreader, we take them through extensive vetting because of the work that we do affects human lives. And this is also comes into play when we're talking about bad translations and why we kind of stick to our guns because we know that we have complete trust in our translation vendors. And so when an in-country reviewer comes back and wants to change things. We take it very seriously because one change could change the entire meaning of a prompt and could have an effect on the trial and well, eventually, potentially, the life of a patient. Exactly. If you just forget to put one comma, yeah. you can kill somebody. You can overdose them with drugs. And, and really, you can make them like bleed to death or, or really give them... You can actually ruin the whole clinical trial. And so I know there's a big push, you know, to use... I'm not going to put names out there to use, like, many known... Uh, translation companies, you see them all over the place. But for our for our work, 
tend to go towards more boutique translation companies because of the work that we do. Just like we go to more boutique translator rather than rather than you know translators that have listed every possible field that they're working in. No, we just stick with. The jack no, of no. all trades is a master of none. Oh, <laughs> that's my gosh. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what we think. Yeah. I mean, how can you translate, um, I don't know, uh, stuff about airplanes and clinical trial? Yeah. I mean, it has nothing to do with each other. So when you start translating these prompts, and we're, we're looking at these translators, we've, we've talked a little bit about how the IRT systems can have fragmented sentences. Mm-hmm. Prepare the dose. Do this. And Tina, I'll ask you, do you find it helpful to have the full requirements there that outlines the flow of how that system should go, of how that IRT is going to work through? Well, um, it depends on the language. There are some languages, for example, Romance languages. As I said earlier, they're fluid. So they have a ways to reward their stuff. German language, for example, is very punctual, very specific, and they need to have their structure. And let's say Korean language, they really cannot even do anything without knowing mm-hmm. what that is coming from, first and then you know what is coming after or let's say in Hebrew language you have this thing that without exception in Hebrew adjective always follows the object it describes hmm. so if the sentence ends on like those to correct the subject previous it sounds fine in English and then you can add like those at the end like with the next prompt in Hebrew, you can't, because that dose has to be connected to the word previous, mm-hmm. or the word previous has to be dropped out and kind of just assumed that it's there, mm-hmm. which it changes English, and that's the problem. You can't change English. So it is it is tricky. We have actually clients that basically give us the whole documentation, mm-hmm. the whole protocol, so we know exactly what follows, what comes in the front, what comes in the back. And then with Almac, we just bug them, you know, we bug you guys with questions and asking, you it's know. It's an open communication flow, yes. I mean, we have to, if we want to do it correctly, and we do want to do it correctly. We yeah. do not want to make mistake or assume that something would come. Because, for example, I brought a paper with, like, some, some examples. There was a prompt that says, at this visit, question mark. And now what? How do you know what comes before that? Uh, it can be anything. Uh, did subject get medicine? Maybe. Maybe next thing to give to subject is going to be blah, blah, at this visit. visit. Mm-hmm. So you have no idea. I mean, we have to go back to the client, Amak in this case, and we have to ask wh- what, comes, what before? comes before. Because based on that, it is going to be uh, translated in a different way and different gender and cases. And <laughs> yes, and as you know, gender as well, yes. Right. Same, same with the different studies. Like we had some studies that are specific for breast cancer. So you have to use, your subject has to be a female. You, I mean, we tried, subject is like, we kind of use it always as default as male. But in that study, you just can't mm-hmm. because it's about breast cancer. Yeah. And then AMAC has to store those prompts all separately yeah. because they're all in female gender. Yeah. And that's where kind of using translation tools, it does help because you can build memories and you can have previous translations. But again, the uh, computer can never replace a human being because a human being at the end of the day has to make these connections. Yes, we have this previous translation for at this visit, but it won't work in a breast cancer case because we have to make this feminine now. Yes, and I agree a, and with a, you. a machine can't do that. It has to go through a proofreader or a human being. What about when you have words that 
can have different meanings. Here, sometimes the Italians have 15 different words for <laughs> beautiful, or in Icelandic, they have 40 different words for snow. When you have those different words, you know, I use the investigator. Investigator can have a lot of different meanings mm -hmm. from between a clinical trial world and anything else. Mm -hmm. How do you start looking at the way those are translated? Does that go back to the in-country reviewers? And the specialty and the expertise of the translator. You know, for example, we're talking about Japanese and how there are three different character sets. A specialized Japanese translator will know to use this, you know, what we call the scientific or the medical uh, translation set because this word would mean more, would be more aligned towards a professional setting than uh, a, another word. Or if we're talking or about subject completion, or, or, or they would ask. Um, here we had in Hebrew, right? The translator asks, says, I have two possible translations for atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. It's a medical term, but it's po two possibilities. Yeah. You have two possibilities to say screening, two possibilities to say sight. Not just in Hebrew, in many languages. Like they can say, like in Italian, you, they can say sito or centro. Mm -hmm. So what is it? Is it sight or is it center? And baseline, that can be like a variety. Anything you mm -hmm. want. So they basically ask us, and then we ask, do you have preference? And if they do, we put it into our TM. Mm -hmm. And uh, where and it's like part of it is a glossary. So glossary. then when we go to that translator or next one, we always give them these terms and we say, please stick with it for consistency reasons. This is what the client wants to use. And then your end client, sometimes they come and they say, we, we want, want to use allocation. Yeah. We do not want to use randomization. And the third one is going to come, no, no, always randomization, mm -hmm. never allocation. You have to be flexible yep. and you have to communicate. There is really no other way. There's really no other way but open communication. What about when a word doesn't exist in a, a clinical sense? Do you substitute the English in or do you let them have many, some? Many times you can substitute the English in or you can, for example, I'm blinding. Oh, um, I love that one. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm blinding <laughs> in English is a, you're lifting the blinds. For example, I think in French, you're opening the shutters, like a window shutter. Right. You know, you're opening something because there's not really that word unblinding in certain yes. languages. So sometimes, like depending on what the word is, you just have to put the English in and then depending on the language, have to put a, a designation or a tag to indicate that, hey, we're dropping English in the middle of a translation or when you're looking at prompts, a prompt that could be five letters in English will end up being 20 or 30 in Tagalog because they have to use descriptive words to get the meaning of that one word in English. And to me, that's kind of the fun of languages and translations as well, just seeing how different can get the same meaning in the most concise form for something that is not really a word for in that language. Yeah, I agree. Um, unblinding is a good one mm -hmm. because... Um, it's very descriptive in some languages. Mm -hmm. So it says, I don't know, to uncover the treatment. Yeah. To, um, well, in Spanish, it's ciego de... Yeah, opening, it's basically unblinding. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, we had one word, escalation and de-escalation. And, um, I mean, it doesn't sound like anything special, right? Well, in most languages, de-escalation doesn't exist. Escalation does, mm. but no de-escalation. De we just got flooded with questions. Can I use reduce? I mean, they all know what it means, but they don't, they can use that exact word. Mm -hmm. So, sure, I mean, we check with the client, of course, if that's possibility, and um, um, if it doesn't exist, well, what can you do? 
You use the closest possible word that you can to describe it. It's just kind of like back, back translation, but in English. We were checking uh, client TM, and they try to like keep some words kind of in English or close to English, you know, like when they tweak the English word to sound like Italian. Mm -hmm. So they had, for word cancel, they had cancelli. And cancelli means a gate. So we're looking at this TM, and we're thinking, what do you mean gate? This is medical TM. It has nothing to do. But the real word is cancellare, to cancel. But they, I guess, MS Word thing, or it was typo, I don't know. But it, it can happen, stuff like that. Like that. Yeah. So it's an English word, or they use the most descriptive way they can describe something or the most similar word to it considerations you have to think of with coding because like we're saying a prompt in English that may be five words may be 20 words in a language and so when you're displaying it on the web how do you then have the flow how do you have it wrap around that's true yeah you know that um, we do have a client who produces a lot of posters Hmm. Uh, like they do all the marketing so it's like radio ads TV ads posters and uh, marketing materials and then, like, if you translate something in Finnish or Spanish, oh, yeah. the words are just, just long, long, long sausages. And Finnish, especially. I mean, I know. Yeah. And, and they're connected, so you can't, like, chop them, you know. <laughs> so uh, we are heavily relying on a desktop publisher person who is multilingual and specializes in that because I have no idea. I mean, unless I make font, like, five, but then nobody would see the poster. Yeah. Yeah. What about a word like cap? Does that give you some, some yes. angst there? Same oh, cap. I'm like, are we talking about a ceiling? Are we talking about a cap on your head? Are we talking about yes. a rant capital? Cap, yeah. Could it be an acronym? Yep. Cap is a big problem <laughs> word. <laughs> Although, you know, when you say like the cap on a salary is this, we all know what it is. That's the max you, you're going to get and that's it. But for the translators, these poor people, they are having so much problem with the word cap. In every language, I did not meet one that did not have a problem with it. We are trying to explain to them, you know, it is the maximum value that you can go up to. And they're like, well, of what? Of patients? Of milligrams? Of dosage? Of what? Because the, the problem doesn't specify what. Okay, let me go back to the client and ask. They're also being creative. Like in French, they translated plafond, which means ceiling. ceiling. In other languages, they translate maximum of. In some languages, they translate maximum value. In some languages, they have to specify of what, you know, maximum of, maximum yeah. what. But, uh, yeah, that that's the one that um, causes a lot of trouble, just tiny little three-letter word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. That all just then comes back to the idea that those fragmented prompts really can throw Absolutely. languages all over the place all because... Over. You have English is such a wonky language mm-hmm. without that verb-subject agreement that always needs to be there. The conjugations, the, the gender, gender cases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. One question I do have for both of you then is, what's your favorite language? Oh, I have oh, many. <laughs> I do. That's not fair. <laughs> you can't ask. That, that's, that is that's not, not fair, fair. question. Oh. I, um, I change my languages, you know, like you change the fashion and colors. So that's how I changed my language. It's like at one time it was Japanese. So I actually attempted to try to learn it. Mm-hmm. And um, the person who was teaching me was not happy because, <laughs> you know, they gave me assignment to like write stuff for the for my homework. And I wrote, like copied everything perfectly. I mean, you could put, you know, you could put on top of the letters that they gave me. It was exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And my instructor said, that's no good. You didn't do anything good. 
there is an order to strokes. You did not follow the order. What order? What are you talking about? No, it has to be exactly the way how you write it, from left to right, up, down, and how you, you know, the stroke of the letter, how you write it. So I failed totally. <laughs> I, I mean, that was like one of my favorite. Then I absolutely love Thai, Thai. alphabet. Oh my gosh, the I love it. The written language, I think that hands it's down, beautiful. Thai is, to me and to Albertina, the most beautiful written language there is. Spoken, yeah. Um, yeah, I tend to lean towards the Romance languages because of the flow. They're very lilting. German, they're just a little harsher, but written oh. language, I'd say Thai. Since I have family from Italy and from Austria, so both Romance, Germanic, and I speak Slavic language, so it's all three groups. I, I, I kind of consider them like a normal thing, <laughs> you know, that you hear your whole life. So I go more into like exotic languages. Like right now I'm watching uh, on YouTube cartoons in Twi. That's a language of Ghana. <laughs> I mean, I know we don't work in it at all, but they have cool cartoons <laughs> on YouTube. And I really like, I just learned two words. One is Asante and one is uh, Matase. <laughs> so I like them. And that's why it's an unfair <laughs> question. So I'm changing it, you know. Languages are so interesting. They you are. Know. And they're it's beautiful. A very interesting space. Yeah. We're obviously working in a good field that we like it. That's that right. <laughs> and one last question Any advice you could give to our listeners? in this clinical trial world for considerations they should take or the one thing they could take back from this whole thing when they're putting their next IRT system live regarding languages? I would say learn as many languages as you can and travel as much as you can. <laughs> but okay, that, that is like outside of work. For work, I would say if you have anything to do with development of languages or development of the scripts or development of the materials, Try to think that your English has to be as clear as possible. I mean, if you don't have other linguistic knowledge and you don't know how other languages are functioning and working, at least what you can do is you can try to make it as simple and as clear as possible. Like nothing to be open for interpretation mm -hmm. because people in other languages will not, what are you meaning there in that sentence? And it's going to be helpful for everyone. But if people have some linguistic knowledge and no second language or multiple languages, then just try to think that in other languages it is going to actually work totally different. Yeah. I guess leapfrogging off of what Tina says, because that would be my number one thing too, is just remember when you're writing requirements or when you're writing a protocol, that languages are going to come after this, not just English. And so my added point would be communication is key. You're probably, when you're translating your English master text from the translations department, you're going to get a lot of questions. And because we're always working on timelines, getting them back to us would be helpful. Yes. So, that's communication true. and clarity, I think, would be the two key takeaways. Yeah. I awesome. Agree. Well, anything else you two would share or add with our listeners? Globalization, languages. We're all going to be at least exposed to one or two other languages in our lifetime an interesting space that is true so things are changing and um with internet with everything yeah. the world is really a global the world is space and um some languages i mean english is understood in most parts of the world to be culturally sensitive and to be yes. fair to other people we don't want to force people to speak and understand english yeah. so everything is provided in their language cultural sensitivity as the sure. world becomes smaller you know, I'll just add one thing we didn't discuss earlier, 
patient and subject. In some countries, oh you gosh, cannot yes. call people subjects. subjects. So when you're writing protocols, think about that. Subject, subject, subject. Now, obviously, when we come to translations, we'll make that accommodation. But these are just kind of the global features that we'd like yeah, people to start like thinking. It's almost like it's appalling to them that you would even consider, consider calling, calling a, a human, human being a subject. a subject. Yeah. So it has to be a So language patient. is not just language. also people as part of culture. So cultural sensitivity. Great. Well, ladies, thank you very much for the time today. I really appreciate it. That was pretty informative. Two key points I took out of this conversation is that we need to always consider the translation aspect when writing a clinical protocol or user requirements for a system because English doesn't necessarily follow a standard structure for its sentences. The other was something I hadn't considered before. There are specialists out there. Tina brought up that the language involved in describing mechanical parts or legal terms is different from medical and that when translating, it can really come down to a whole world of difference. It falls in line with one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone, How to Serve Man. I guess it goes along with the idea of let's eat grandma. If you're interested in learning more about languages or our translation process, head on over to Elmai Clinical University where we have some great articles and tips around this very topic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Matt Lowry, and this is the Spotlight on IRT Podcast. You've been listening to the Spotlight on IRT Podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.